Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, we have a show that focuses on surveillance, democracy, and authoritarianism in a couple of different ways. First, we're going to talk about the revelations of the Pegasus Project and its investigation into the Israeli firm NSO Group. Then, we're going to take a deep dive on Chinese tech in the world with a panel of experts convened by the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, DFR Lab. Our first conversation is with Maricha Shaki, the International Policy Director at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center and an International Policy Fellow at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. She is also the President of the Cyber Peace Institute, and between 2009 and 2019, she served as a member of the European Parliament for the Dutch Liberal Democratic Party. Last week, Maricha published a column in the Washington Post with David Kay, a law professor at the University of California at Irvine, and previously the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, about the threat the global spyware industry poses to democracy. Last weekend, a global consortium of news organizations, including the Washington Post, joined Forbidden Stories, a Paris-based journalism nonprofit, to publish an investigation into the Israeli firm NSO Group. The firm has sold its marquee spyware, Pegasus, to willing buyers to surveil journalists, heads of state, and activists. Pegasus turns the phones of such individuals into real-time spying devices. NSO Group is one of hundreds of such companies around the world. My name is Maricha. I'm the International Policy Director at Stanford Cyber Policy Center, and I'm also an international fellow at the Institute for Human-Centered AI. And you have been following the global spyware industry uh, for some time. This week's news for you, I suppose, is a sort of another dot in a in a story arc or a narrative that's been going for a while. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm happy with every minute of attention and spotlight that this spyware industry and all the harms that it's causing is getting. Uh, but I also kind of shook my head in disbelief that it's actually been 10 years that I've been working on the uh, surveillance industry, all the harms that they're causing to human rights, uh, to press freedom. And so, yeah, it's it's a really double, double uh, feeling this week for me, bittersweet in some ways. What does this industry now look like across the globe? How would you describe it? I would describe it as very cynical uh, and as much more sophisticated than 10 years ago, uh, much more powerful than 10 years ago, misunderstood and invisible to the majority of people. And that's where I think the Pegasus Project has made a difference because, you know, once the, the president of France is on a list of persons of interest, it does make it a different political matter than Unfortunately, so, you know, human rights defenders in authoritarian regimes that are sort of facing this kind of technology almost on their own, where there has not been enough support from democratic leaders, democratic governments for the actual harms that these technologies are causing. And what I find so ironic is how NSO Group, but also the many other uh, spyware surveillance companies out there are often in democracies, they come from democratic societies, while they directly oppose the stated foreign policy and human rights policies of those countries. So 
you know, take Israel. It says we're a democracy. We believe in human rights. In fact, we're the only democracy in a very troubled neighborhood. And we think that the press should be free and that there, you know, that there should be respect for human rights. While the Israeli authorities have actually allowed this industry to blossom. Uh, Israel is very strong when it comes to spyware. Actually, uh, the Citizen Lab revealed another uh, company that has exploited Microsoft to, uh, you know, to to um, stealthily spy on people. And so it doesn't add up to, on the one hand, call for the respect for human rights, uh, respect for democracy, and on the other hand, turn a blind eye to this industry that is attacking democracy and human rights for business. Now, wouldn't the folks who are involved in companies like NSO, which, which by the way, did boast advisors who had had roles, for instance, in the Department of Homeland Security here in the United States, wouldn't they say they're on the good side, that they're defending democracies from, from the bad guys? Oh, I'm sure that's what they're saying. But you do have to ask yourself how technology from NSO Group gets gets um, shipped to Saudi Arabia, presumably with a lot of consulting and explanation of how the systems work. Uh, while Saudi Arabia is well known for mislabeling people as terrorists, uh, as criminals for that matter, in order to justify their repression of very basic human rights. And so I think what is said by NSO groups, officials and others representing spyware and cyber surveillance companies doesn't count as much as what these companies do. And the whole idea of, oh, our trust in our clients has been breached if they misuse this technology to actually go after others than the worst terrorist suspects in this world. It's a kind of hypocritical uh, argument that is completely non-credible. I mean, if you are playing in this league, you have a multi-billion dollar company, you are dealing with intelligence services all over the world, you cannot say, well, we shook hands, they pinky swore that they were going to use this only to go after terrorists. And oh, my gosh, you know, we just learned from Amnesty International that that may not be true. I mean, this, this is nonsense. You know, across the globe, we're seeing the rise of a variety of tools and technologies, similar to Pegasus, which allows people to essentially turn any phone into a listening device. I'm looking also at the report this week that Clearview AI, the facial recognition company that has attracted a lot of criticism, of course, for its practices in relationship to law enforcement, has just raised a ton of money. What should governments do uh, you know, to hold, to hold the line against the encroachment of these surveillance technologies into our societies and into our law enforcement and, and other, uh, other mechanisms? I think it's really important that democratic governments appreciate and understand that companies like Clearview AI, and I'm very glad you mentioned them, like NSO Group and other surveillance tech companies are essentially competing with the most sensitive roles of the state. So I think you can consider NSO Group a privatized intelligence service, or at least it's intelligence grade technologies. Clearview AI is competing with law enforcement, identification of, of individuals, and I hope that democratic governments think this is not the kind of function we want to have out of control companies, meaning companies without the proper oversight checks and balances running as core functions that indeed are very sensitive. And so I hope they feel incentivized to draw a line and to ask themselves if we claim to have or have to defend constitutional right to privacy a uh, fundamental right to privacy, then 
our obligations to protect those rights are directly challenged by these companies. There's no other way to look at it. You cannot have commercial facial recognition systems uh, based on scraped images from the internet sold to law enforcement while saying, well, there's a right to privacy. Uh, the same with, with mass surveillance systems and the same with the stealthy um, intrusion and exfiltration of information from people's devices. It does not combine with fundamental rights. And that's a problem. Democracy should de defend these fundamental rights, should defend the rule of law, notions of a presumption of innocence, uh, not the targeting and, and um, intimidation of victims of this spyware. So uh, it's very urgent that democracies, hopefully together, draw a line in the sand against this industry. You talk about a couple of specific things that governments can do. Uh, one is export control. So, you know, quite literally putting some controls on how these technologies can be sent across borders. What are some of the other things that governments could do that would help to rein in these types of technologies? Well, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy on the part of democratic governments too. A lot of the systems that we're talking about are procured in the first place to actually be used by democratic police, law enforcement, intelligence services, and so on. So they should take ownership of preventing the proliferation. Uh, so I think there should be maybe better contracts that avoid the use of the same innovations and technologies towards other clients. I mean, if you really want this to be restricted and focused, you should have better know your customer, better due diligence, better oversight mechanisms to avoid the proliferation. And the proliferation of these systems is a real problem that has already been recognized. I remember James Clapper saying uh, that lawful intercept capabilities have been found in, I think, 25 cases when there was one you know, contract that was known and legitimate. So uh, it, it's really important to, to rein it in to have better oversight. But also, as you mentioned, export controls, which is something I worked on when I was still a member of the European Parliament, were always just one piece of the puzzle in order to, um, you know, put, put checks and balances in place and to have scrutiny of potential harms to human rights of these technologies uh, included, for example, and not just national security considerations. But the Pegasus project has shown that in a country like Hungary, the government was the importer. And so in the case of bringing in these technologies into the EU, export controls are not going to help. Uh, and I think there's really a moment now where the legitimacy of the use of these systems at all should be discussed. Uh, and certainly if they're going to be used, what kind of redress mechanisms are there? What kind of oversight is there? Because abuse is really uh, luring below the surface. And we've seen that now with, you know, example after example. One of the things that you say in this piece with David Kay is that these companies need to subject themselves to more uh, outside scrutiny. Um, you talk about the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights, uh, which is this global standard. Um, what would be appropriate uh, independent scrutiny? What type of scrutiny would be necessary to put the, put the brakes on such a fragmented and, and kind of growing and secretive industry? I mean, what, what type of scrutiny could governments possibly do in this space? Well, scrutiny of the use is one half of the, the answer, but also scrutiny of the technology is another half of the answer. And if I look at the Netherlands, the country that I know best, um, one of the main newspapers here has been um, submitting freedom of information requests to the Dutch government, not exactly you know Saudi Arabia with much better human rights track record, thankfully. But nevertheless, the Dutch government refuses to answer which types 
of spyware it uses. So it's also not denying that it's using NSO group. And I think that in that non-answer, you find part of the clue as to why this is an industry that is so difficult to rein in. There have also been uh, sort of rumors that I heard a lot when I was working on the regulation that actually intelligence services are benefiting from these technologies. So nobody, I think, would be surprised if NSO Group actually was working with Israeli intelligence uh, to pass on information glanced through the sale of these commercial spyware systems, but th that clearly um, provide access to hugely sensitive information. And so scrutiny of those relationships, oversight over intelligence services and the kinds of technologies that they're using, uh, preventing the proliferation uh, and having norms around how this is used, if it is used at all, I think are all very, very urgent. We hear huge concern in this week uh, between the US, the EU and NATO expressed about China's cyber menacing, using technology to uh, attack uh, at, the, at the very core exchange servers of Microsoft. Their shared concern about China, I would say uh, across the uh, political spectrum in the United States, has anyone wondered what would happen if Chinese spyware would be used to go after journalists of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Fox News or CNN if they report unfavorably about China? What would the United States do in an instance like that? What laws does it have to fall back to? So the idea that democracies are benefiting from this industry, uh, benefiting from a hands-off regulatory approach will be tested the minute that the tables turn and that perhaps, and I hope it doesn't happen, but perhaps our own societies will be flooded with these uh, technologies and we will feel like uh, others may benefit uh, from the use of these technologies in a way that uh, really hinders our core freedoms and values. So it is uh, a moment to look at where this industry has, has grown into, what this industry has grown into, who benefits, and what we actually know. And the fact that we know so little should be reason for concern as such. Yeah. The other thing I find myself thinking about with regard to this NSO story is, you know, in some level, we're all surveillance artists now. We're all installing, you know, devices on our homes, on our front stoops that are tracking our neighbors and, you know, we're recording one another in various surreptitious ways, uh, you know, is the, is the kind of, I don't know, horse out of the barn, as we might say um, on this is, is I read a story this week about the idea that some are embracing in the United States, which I must say terrifies me, the idea of putting body cams on teachers. Um, wh where is this all sort of headed in a broader sense? Well, it is very frightening that in a way, Big Brother is us, right? But we are very much um, enabled by an industry that, for example, makes it more palpable to have facial recognition to unlock your iPhone, whereas it's a different context if there's mass facial recognition systems deployed in public spaces. And so it's important to also differentiate between the way in which it's used. I was thinking about the same question in the context of the a terrible murder that just happened of a, um, a crime journalist in the Netherlands. And there were people who were on the scene where he was shot and proceeded to post the clips that they had filmed onto Instagram and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. And people were furious. 
Whereas at the same time, the police was asking for these recordings in the interest of evidence gathering. And one can say, well, that doesn't add up. But on the, on the other hand, it is a different context. Uh, when the police use, uses these images to find a suspect, uh, it is different from just being a sort of, you know, disaster tourist to, to be there and to have interesting materials to share with friends on social media. So context matters, but we have to understand that once the technology is developed, um, it will more easily creep into different missions. And I, I miss that discussion in our own societies. For a long time, the idea has been, well, there can be abuse of technology, you know, if it goes uh, to authoritarian regimes, uh, then we have to fear uh, what could go wrong. But actually, the use of certain technologies like Clearview AI as such is an abuse of rights. And I think that that's what we have to uh, think about the same with, with NSO Group. What is the legitimate use of spyware? Uh, I, I really want to uh, wanna have a more uh, lively discussion about. And if there is a legitimate use, what constitutes that legitimacy, which checks and balances, what mandate, what oversight, um, how to how to oversee the users, right, so that they don't abuse the technology uh, somehow. And and um, there's too too little transparency, too little independent oversight over this whole sector and the whole sort of intelligence corner and the use of technology there. Are there ideas about secrecy and surveillance and their relationship to democracy that guide your thinking on this? We speak today, uh, 10 years after the horrendous terrorist attack on Utoya in Norway. And I just reviewed for my own sort of moment of remembrance, the speech that Jens Stoltenberg, then the prime minister of Norway gave, currently the secretary general of NATO. His words were so profound. That country had been hurt where, where uh, it, it really is, is felt most. Young people on a summer camp killed by a far-right inspired terrorist. And he said, the answer to this, this attack will be more freedom, more democracy, and more humanity. Whereas instead, what we often see is in response to an incident, Obviously, September 11th, ter terrible uh, loss of life because of a terrorist attack comes to mind. But there, it was really the start of systematic restrictions in civil liberties. Again, you know, in the name of fighting terrorism, almost any <laughs> forsaking of rights protections was um, enabled in, in a free society. And so I always go back to the question of what is it that we seek to defend? Of course, there's risk out there. We, we dread and hate terrorists, crime, you know, mafia-esque practices, and of course they need to be fought. But at some point you have to wonder what is proportionate and how do you make sure that the, uh, you know, in, in some ways medicine doesn't get more toxic than the disease. And, and that is the kind of question I always try to ask myself, after all, it is our freedoms that we seek to defend. And are we doing that in the right way? And are we not misguided by the promises of what technology could bring to keep us safer while overlooking you know, new risks, uh, unintended consequences, benefits for companies that are absolutely not in the interest of the public and of society and of, of our rights, protections, and civil liberties? And it is remarkable how 
democratic decline globally has gone hand in hand with technological disruption globally. And I think it should be uh, a wake-up call in that sense that we really have to find ways to govern technology in democracy's image and not sort of trust that the, democ that the democracy will come with the technology without any you know, safeguards. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. At the end of June, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, DFR Lab, hosted its 360 Open Summit, The World in Motion. One of the panels focused on Chinese tech in the world. The expert panel considers how the Chinese Communist Party uses technology to facilitate political authoritarianism at home while exporting its interests abroad, and the role of private sector firms in the Chinese public sphere. The panel is moderated by Isaac Stone Fish, Chief Executive Officer of Strategy Risks, a consultancy that combines political analysis, data, and risk assessment to quantify the ties between corporations and the Chinese Communist Party. It also features Josh Chen, Deputy China Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal, Lotus Ruin, a research fellow at the Citizen Lab and the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, Puma Shin, Chairman of DoubleThink Lab, and Alexandria Williams, a Nairobi-based tech journalist. Here's Isaac. Hi, my name is Isaac Stonefish. I am the CEO and founder of Strategy Risks, a firm which quantifies corporate exposure to China. Very excited to welcome our panelists for our conversation today. The topic is Chinese tech in the world, and we're going to be focusing more on what I would say Beijing's tech in the world or the party's tech in the world. The distinction between a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs and a lot of brilliant Chinese innovation and some of the ways that Beijing and the CCP is using that innovations and information for nefarious or at least controlling reasons. Uh, Lotus, I'm going to start with you. The panelists are all going to introduce each other uh, themselves when they speak. Lotus, you, you've done a lot of work on the relationship between private businesses in, and the state in terms of information control. So the audience would be really interested to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Thanks, Isaac. So I'm Lotus Ran. I'm a senior researcher at the University of Toronto Citizen Lab. Um, our research focuses a lot on information control, censorship, privacy, and surveillance issues uh, pertaining to Chinese social media. Um, so a lot of research recently have been focusing on Chinese social media applications such as WeChat, including Chinese company-owned application like TikTok and Douyin, and what are some of the implications for user privacy and content control on these applications. Fantastic. And so Puma, over to the right, does a lot of work on Chinese tech and disinformation. I'd love to hear from you the ways in which Chinese tech platforms, but also U.S. platforms, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, spread disinformation. Yeah, so hi, this is Puma Shen from DoubleThink Lab. So our organization focused on several issues, and there are like four main points here. First is the who are the state actors, like who are the adversaries who are initiating all this I.O. stuff. 
And also we look at the channels, the infrastructure, that how they spread all this disinformation online and offline. So we also investigate a lot of like United Frontward Department stuff. And also we look at the content, the narratives, whether they are uh, spreading only like cheerleading stuff, or they're spreading conspiracy theory, all this negative stuff to trigger our negative emotion. And that's the third thing. And also the last stuff that we really focus on is like who are the victims, like which group of people are more vulnerable than the other that consume this disinformation from China. And since today's panel focus a lot on tech and not very like tech oriented, but later I will discuss more about how technology could be exploited and uh, to uh, using the big data analysis and how this information could be spread uh, uh, in the assistance of all this uh, information collected by China state actors. Fantastic, thank you, Puma. And Alexandria, so you know, you're doing a lot of really fascinating work on China, tech, and Africa. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, hi, everybody. I'm Alexandria Sahai-Williams, and I live in Nairobi, Kenya, where I primarily research China's private tech investment in Africa. So I focus on companies like Huawei and social media companies as well, and how they are affecting the tech landscape on the ground in Africa, particularly East Africa. Fantastic. Thank you. And Josh, tell us about you. Hi, everyone. My name is Josh Chin. I am the uh, Deputy China Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal. I'm currently based in Taipei after I was expelled from Beijing along with several other American journalists last year. Um, uh, before my current job, I was, a, I was a reporter covering sort of tech and politics, um, including uh, state surveillance in China um, and in Xinjiang in particular. Um, currently putting the hopefully finishing touches on a book uh, about that same topic that will be out next year. So I know all of you are avid consumers and also producers of news and journalism. And I'd love to hear in this sort of Beijing tech global space, when you're reading media commentary on this, what do you feel like people most often misunderstand or people most often get wrong? So you're reading a story and you think, oh, no, that that wasn't right. Uh, Josh, let's start with you on that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the I think the thing that I see the most often that I think is misleading, although it's understandable why people would would adopt it, is the is the sort of Cold War framing. Um, you know, almost everything in, in you know having to do with China tech is now these days sort of slotted into this this idea of a, a sort of tech Cold War uh, pits the U.S. against China. And, you know, in the sense of sort of two superpowers facing off for sort of global influence, it makes, it makes sense. But it's also, I think, you know, it, it's misleading in the sense that the China of the 21st century of now is nothing like the Soviet Union of the 1980s, right? It's, um, it's, it's deeply integrated with the global economy, with the U.S. economy. Um, it's technologically much more advanced. Um, and what it's trying to accomplish is very different than what um, ideologically the, the Soviet Union was after. And so I think that's the, and including with technology. And so I think that's the, I think, again, understandable framing, but I think we, I think we often sort of misunderstand, or we risk misunderstanding what's happening in China uh, when we use that, that framing. Alexandria, over to you. What would you say that conventional wisdom is on China tech and Africa? And then what are people misunderstanding with that? I would say that conventional wisdom 
often forgets the collusion with actors on the ground in Africa. I think when um, the export of Chinese technology to Africa is written about or explored on the continent, it often takes out um, these narratives of, I don't know, political elites in certain countries that directly collude with forces in China to import Chinese technology. And, you know, the decisions and the trade-offs that leaders in Africa make to access technology that does advance technological development forward um, in their countries. It's fascinating. Are there any particular examples that you feel like really elucidate that? I mean, one example that I'm going to use is Huawei. Huawei is a really, the Huawei conversation in Africa, I feel like is very nuanced because Huawei has pursued a number of projects on the African continent. So I'm going to use East Africa, for example. When we think of Huawei, we often think of uh, Uganda, where they rolled out the Safe Cities project, which enabled um, Museveni to uh, kind of suppress opposition for the last election. But Huawei also was responsible for the undersea cable um, that's outside of the port of Mabasa in Kenya. And talking to a lot of people um, who are involved in technology here, they'll say that that undersea cable definitely changed the game for technology and is part of what made Kenya a tech hub today. And then, you know, Huawei also does a lot of corporate social responsibility projects. Um, I talked to a UN representative a few days ago who said that he had worked with Huawei to roll out technology in the border near Somalia to help reduce maternal deaths. So I think that the discussion around Chinese tech in Africa is very nuanced. And some of the things that are happening are bad, definitely bad. But then there are these other things that are beneficial to people on the ground. And I think that providing a better narrative around that involves understanding um, the actual effects that it has to people and companies and the development of the African tech sector. Lotus, what about to you, the conventional wisdom in, in your sector and, and what's actually going on? I think that's a great question. So again, our team focuses a lot on information control, censorship on Chinese social media. I would think the biggest sort of uh, myth about censorship in China on Chinese social media is that the system is often portrayed as a top-down monolithic system mm. where the party or the state has full control over what social media companies censor. Um, of course, if you are internet platform operating in China, you're actually required to invest tech and personnel into making sure that your content on the platform stay within the line. However, the line is usually not clearly drawn. There is the responsibility of controlling content, censoring content is actually downloaded to a private company. So oftentimes it's up to the private company to decide, you know, what specific keyword to censor, what specific content to censor. Um, so I would say that when it comes to, let's say, information control, or even the transmission of user data, oftentimes we tend to think of Chinese state as the one controlling factor over all private companies. But in reality, the role of private actor and private company is um, also very interesting to watch and eye out for. And oftentimes we saw that content control even have become like an industry in China, for example, Alibaba has a Ali cloud platform and some other country, so, sorry, some other companies even offer services to help a smaller platform to make sure the content stay within the line. So I would say that one of the myths is what are the involvement of the states in China's information control apparatus um, and actually the importance, you know, the private company's role in facilitating a system. Oh, well, that's, that's fascinating and also really grim. Thanks, Lotus. Uh, Puma, what about you? What, what are people thinking about disinformation and what are they missing? 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with what Lord has just said. It's either yeah. like top down or bottom up. So, I mean, to understand Chinese influence operation, it's kind of crucial to not categorize all these attacks in very traditional way. So, I mean, there's a group of people saying that, hey, this is the state actor, they're very centralized. But also there are another group of people saying that, hey, the, all these information operations are kind of scattered and they're ineffective. And I think both of them are wrong. So, I mean, Chinese influence operation are both centralized and decentralized. And to explain this, I mean, this the command of the CCP might be very centralized, but the operators have their own capacity to initiate different kinds of attacks. And these attacks are often decentralized since the operators seldom collaborate with each other. So operators try to find any like niches that they can fit into. So once they can find a topic that suits the CCP's propaganda or purpose, mm -hmm. and that they try hard to apply for government fundings and I mean, the corruption will be involved for sure. And then initiate uh, this kind of IO attack and revise their strategy along the way when the attack is weighted. So, I mean, when we talk about technology, we always say that, hey, the social media has been weaponized, the algorithm has been weaponized. But I mean, in the Chinese context, I, it's kind of China is really good at not just weaponizing social media or technology. They're very good at weaponizing their citizens or weaponizing uh, Chinese diaspora and using them as a weapon to initiate different kinds of on uh, disinformation operation. So, I mean, I mean, that's the very general misunderstanding on this kind of topic, I think. Fantastic. So Taiwan is in many ways the testing ground for influence operations and perhaps the country that the United Front Work Department, a party organization that strengthens China's friends and weakens its enemies, the place that they're the most active in. And I'd love to hear, Pumo, what you think the United States can learn about Chinese influence operations in Taiwan and what lessons they can take to better prepare their own citizens to resist those. So in terms of technology, when we talk about all this surveillance stuff, it's not that really popular right now here in Taiwan. I think they can uh, try to diminish diminish this the value of democracy by uh, investing all these foreign companies or even enter countries with its own companies to do so. But it's not uh, it's not the case in Taiwan. So what other countries could learn from Taiwan? Is, I think there are like two stuff. So first is like the how China hackers uh, try to hack hack into our systems or how their mm -hmm. companies steal and collect information in Taiwan. So there's a quick example. There's a company called Wuwei Technology in Beijing. So they try to operate all these online psychological tests on Facebook and IG, and then collect all this uh, information, all this private information from Taiwanese citizens, and then try to analyze the, the profiling or uh, our persona and how we think uh, and categorize Taiwanese people into separate groups and then establish the content from and actually several content from websites to spread political disinformation against like, different kinds of people. I think that's very successful because they're utilizing all this big data analysis and trying to find like which group of people are vulnerable than the others so who will consume all these Chinese kind of disinformation. But I think what is more important here is that Previously, I think in 2018 and 2019, China is really good at uh, big data analysis, establish all these fan pages, IG, uh, uh, Instagram, uh, uh, try to have a lot of Instagram followers to spread this information. But right now they're uh, going through another strategy. I call it investment strategy, which means that they try to invest uh, the like entertainment enterprise or uh, the, the PR firms and trying to have them to spread this information locally there in that country. And as here in Taiwan. So for example, there are um, 
And they will try to bribe the live streamers or influencers or even YouTubers to have them spread all these pro-China messages. So it's not about like using technology. It's more about approaching people, making friends and paying them money. And people may think that it could be a conspiracy theory because it's really hard to prove that all these influencers have official connections with all these Chinese actors. But however, sometimes it they don't need so. So uh, a best example here is that when you look at 2019, uh, there's the election there in 2020, January. So in 2019, uh, when you look at the top 10 YouTubers who received donation online here in Taiwan, seven of them spread pro-China messages. Yeah. And sometimes be because they don't, really, they do not have any official relationship with China. But people will know that if you spread pro-China messages, you automatically make some money through the donation system from YouTube, or you can provide a uh, you can provide a QR code for them, and they could donate them from like WeChat Pay or Alipay. You can make money, and that's how they can establish that this info information market just like that. And when you trace all this disinformation, you will find some local influencers or uh, these local citizens spread this information. So I think yeah, yeah. So I think that's that kind of crucial right now. I, I think you bring up a lot of really excellent points. You know, the, 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 even though we're living in a very tech connected world, a lot of this is just human to human and bribery and corruption or aligning of influences. And because we think about this issue in the United States, uh, TikTok is, is a great example of a company that you know, we're still struggling with how to figure out how to situate it. And Josh, I, I'd love to hear your analysis. How should people in the United States, both from the market's perspective, but also from a national security perspective, how do you think they should think about TikTok? I mean, TikTok is a TikTok's a really interesting story, right? I mean, I think that they, um, I mean, it's so politicized because of the previous U.S. administration um, that it's you know it's it's all the rhetoric around TikTok and around the parent company ByteDance during the Trump administration was so heated and 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 full of its own sort of, sorts of disinformation. It's really hard hard to pick apart. Um, you know, I think, I, I can't remember, actually, Lotus, was, was it you guys who did this work? I mean, I think it was Citizen Lab who did an analysis of, of, of TikTok's source code, right, and found that it, was, it wasn't collecting any more data than, you know, personal data than Facebook or, or Twitter or any other social media app, right? So there's nothing, at least in the code initially, that, that you look at that, that makes it seem any more sinister or dangerous. I mean, you know, of course, it's it's a Chinese company, right? And it's you know, it's ultimately its headquarters are in Beijing, and um, you know, there's a lot of debate about the extent to which Chinese internet companies resist demands from Beijing. But ultimately, of course, Beijing can can turn the screws on internet companies when it wants to, and we've been we've been seeing that happen with with Alibaba, uh, with Ant Financial, uh, a little bit with Tencent recently. You know, it's 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 a fascinating question. I mean, I think. There is, you know, should you delete TikTok? I don't know. I mean, it's a, I guess it's a personal choice. Um, I mean, but you should, I mean, I think you should generally be wary of any company that's collecting your personal data, right? You know, I guess think a little bit about the fact this is a Chinese company. I don't know. I, I don't really have a really satisfying answer there, but, but maybe Lotus has more to say on that. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Yeah. What do you think, Lotus? Thanks, Josh. Yeah, so my uh, my colleague Pelian Lin, he actually did a uh, comprehensive technical analysis of TikTok and Douyin. So Douyin is just the um, Chinese version of um, 
TikTok um, that operates only in mainland, mainland China, I think. So what he found is pretty interesting in the sense that exactly like you said in the previous administration, there's a lot of framing uh, using national security framing to sort of describe Chinese social media applications such as WeChat and TikTok as a national security threat. Um, I think that has come with several implications. Well, first of all, our technical analysis didn't find that TikTok collects any more data than other social media company does. So assume whatever Facebook collects you, TikTok does. Also, when it comes to like exactly like you said, should I delete TikTok on my phone? I think it's entirely up to your personal choice. If privacy is your concern, then maybe also think about what other social media apps collect on your phone as well. Um, that said, we did find on the Douyin version, things a little bit different. Um, there are different features on this Chinese version of TikTok um, that caters specifically to the mainland Chinese market. For example, we did find, you know, it collects more information. We did find that certain terms are restricted. So I think the distinction really is also, I think we need to going back to collecting information or censorship, right? The role of private company is one of the key factor in understanding how and why and whether company does certain thing. For Biden's, which is TikTok's parent company, for them making profit is probably the primary concern. So would that cater a lot of their resources to answer to a specific gov government? I don't know, but I just know that when it comes to issues like that, oftentimes we also look at do, you know, the nature of private companies. Is it there to make money? Is it there to answer to, you know, users' needs or is it there to retain more users? I think another interesting example is, again, WeChat. So a lot of my research focus on WeChat. It's owned by a Chinese company and we do find that WeChat censor a lot of information um, in mainland China. But interestingly, WeChat has expanded overseas. What we found is that WeChat implement censorship only on accounts that register to a mainland Chinese phone number. For its international user, meaning that if you initially register WeChat account with an international phone number, you're not subject to censorship of Chinese political sensitivity. So mm -hmm. I think when it comes to issues like that, we need to think about, you know, what are the nature of private companies? Are they here to make money? Again, I don't have a specific answer to that. We can argue that, you know, again, there's a saying that the data is the new oil, right? So if you have a lot of your, your citizens' data, at the behalf of a private company, a foreign company, could that be considered potentially a national security threat? Maybe. But also, we, I think we need to look into more technical evidence and more sort of broad role understanding of what a threat is and how, you know, it, what is the implication for average users in any nation. I think those are great points. And I think it boils down to the issue of if China is a national security threat to the United States, then TikTok is as well because it's a Chinese company and because party has at least de facto control over a lot of what TikTok does. And then if China is not a national security threat, then TikTok is, is very akin to Facebook in the weaponizing or the not weaponizing of the information that TikTok and Facebook collects. Uh, so Alexandria, on this issue of sort of trust and national security threat perceptions, and I know I'm going to ask you a lot of generalized questions because I know there's a, a wide variety of views in Africa and in different African nations about this. But, you know, broadly speaking, where do you think the direction is when it comes to the perception of trust, both of China as a trading partner, but also Chinese tech for African consumers and African governments? 
In terms of China as a trading partner, it really depends on who you ask. And for a lot of people that I've talked to, particularly people who work in industry like developers or investors, I do think that they see China's investment in Africa as a threat because it's directly competing with their financial interests. If you ask people on the ground, like for example, in Kenya right now in Nairobi, there is a huge bridge highway being built by a Chinese state-owned enterprise right now. And if you ask people about it, they'll say, you know, they're moving too slowly, they're charging our government, they're bu- they're building all these white elephant projects. So that perception can be quite negative. But then when you look at the tech landscape, I think people realize that there's sort of a trade-off. Most people in on the African continent, at least people that I've talked to, don't even realize that TikTok's a Chinese company. Hmm. And also the technical landscape of Chinese companies is very different here. So other than TikTok, we also have Viscuit, we have Boomplay, which is a music app. So there are tons of apps here that are in some way connected to China, but people don't realize it. And I think to people, it's not that important because Hmm. there's a trade-off, right? So here's an example. A friend of mine has a techno phone, a girlfriend of mine has a techno phone, and um, she was talking about how her WhatsApp was messing up. She's like, my WhatsApp is messing up. It's acting funny. She's like, well, you know, it's a techno phone and techno is a Chinese company. Like maybe it's because, you know, I said something about the Chinese government and she kind of giggled about it, but was like, no, I'm kidding. Like I'll keep this phone because the pictures are great. So there's this trade-off that people realize here between uptaking tech that could potentially take their data or misuse their data and having access to really good technology. And I think that that's something that people should realize when discussing the uptake and the um, export of Chinese tech into Africa. It's a region that's been historically ignored by tech companies where tech companies haven't taken the time to do market research and understand what people need here. And when you have these companies that are coming in, offering affordable technology, offering discounts on data. So for example, Boomplay, which is a music app here, you can use without using actual data on your phone, which is extremely expensive here in Kenya. People are willing to make that trade-off. And until there are other options available, people will continue to utilize whatever's available and whatever's the most affordable. Like to talk about Xinjiang a bit, and Josh, I'd love to hear from you how Chinese tech innovation can lead to, for lack of a better term, innovative oppression in Xinjiang, uh, the region in northwest China, where there are upwards of a million Muslims and, and other minorities in concentration camps. The situation in Xinjiang is hopefully pretty well known by now, so um, I won't belabor. I won't go sort of repeat everything. Um, it's, it's a pretty bad situation, and technology is obviously a key piece of it. And it really is, I mean, it's, it, it is dystopian. It's not, you know, it's, it's, I, I remember when I first went there in, in late 2017, on my first trip, um, I, uh, my reporting partner and I drove in because we were afraid of going to the airport that we get picked up there. And so, but we, we drove in and immediately crossing the border into Xinjiang from, from Gansu, you could just immediately feel like you were in a different place, right? It was it was like a counterinsurgency operation, but it was but it was like all tech based. It's it's quite amazing, and it's 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 just suffocating. Um, you know, it's it's sort of cameras everywhere, checkpoints everywhere. You have to scan your face to go into like a, a bazaar or into like a hotel or a bank. Um, we we actually got pulled over at one point because we were driving a. Uh, a rental car with license plates from outside of Xinjiang and they had a license plate reader that flagged our car um, and cops came, came in and like blocked our pathway back and forth, you know, on, on the front of our car and rear of our car and made us get out and, and explain what we were doing. You know, the, the party in, in Xinjiang is really, what Xinjiang shows is what can happen when 
states use technology with no limits uh, to to exert control on a population um, and to really engineer. I mean, it's 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 not it's not just control, but it's act actively trying to shape um, a population's behavior and identity. Um, and, and it's using data to sort of try to predict who the troublemakers are going to be, right? It, it's it's absolute maximum um, end of, of oppression for technology. Uh, and so I, and I think in that sense, you know, it's, it's obviously valuable to, to look at, even if you don't have a particular interest in China, because I think it really shows what, what this technology can do. Um, and on, but on the flip side, you know, you have this exact same technologies being used in places like Hangzhou, in the exact opposite way, right? Hangzhou is this sort of digital paradise, right? It's this beautiful, you know, it's, it's where Alibaba is, is located. It's where two of the biggest uh, surveillance camera companies in the world are located. But, you know, everything in Hangzhou runs smoothly because there's cameras everywhere feeding data into, into the, the sort of central smart city. Uh, they call it the city brain, you know, and it, it optimizes traffic, you know, and it, it, it like it, it optimizes everything in the city based on data it's collecting. And so if you're, you know, if you're a wealthy, you know, Han Chinese person living in Hangzhou, surveillance is really great for you. Um, so I, I think to me, the really interesting thing in China is that, is that contrast. Puma, what's the debate in Taiwan about Xinjiang? And, and where do we see Xinjiang disinformation spreading in Taiwan? Uh, it's a very interesting case here because I know someone who mastered in, uh, who got a PhD in math and who worked in China, actually developed a system that how to uh, monitor the people, how, how they walk in Xinjiang, because they can indicate like who you are, like by only uh, for targeting, like using the camera and see how you walk and you will know like who it is and whether they are like walking too quickly and whether they want to initiate attack or something like that. So, I mean, all this uh, surveillance technology has been uh, spread all over and people are talking about it and people are aware of it. And especially after the I mean, Hong Kong protest issue, uh, last year, or almost like two years ago, people here in Taiwan are very much aware of this kind of surveillance technology. However, what people are not aware of right now here in Taiwan is how they steal users' information overseas uh, using like various applications because you're just mentioning like TikTok and Douyin, right? So the scenario has become very uh, complicated here. So just a very quick example. Lots of like media services providers in Taiwan is very similar to Netflix and are actually operated by or invested in by China. And this company can execute their legal responsibility responsibility by disguising their efforts within Taiwanese media service platforms and try to collect users' information every day. So they imprint our user data within the wall and combine the data with other information that hacker gathers, such as the ID number, the address. And what is even worse is that Think about it when all these services like, like Netflix, I'm not talking about Netflix, but the, the services that are similar to Netflix, if they aim to combine with the cable service in your own country and which is happening right now here in Taiwan, which means they can even gather more information and could, more information could be gathered in the near future. And um, uh, in terms of the question you talked about how the Xinjiang the information is it, it's very political because people only talk, talk, talk about Xinjiang because that they sense that Chinese, China is a threat right now. And mm -hmm. when they are not sensing that kind of issue and maybe this kind of discussion will kind of diminish. Yeah, it's sad. I think that's in some ways the case in the United States too, where people who talk about Xinjiang sometimes just do it because it's about China as a threat as opposed to about you know, the horrific human rights violation and genocide that's happening there. Uh, so we're opening it up to questions from the audience. And Alexandria, there's a question from you about how Chinese tech firms and the Belt and Road Initiative navigate diverse 
religious groups across Africa, diverse religious dynamics across Africa, that's not really an issue that comes up. Let me think about it. I mean, from my experience, it's not an issue that the companies themselves involve themselves in. From my experience and research with Chinese companies in Africa, even like Chinese um, media enterprises in Africa, they really do try to stay away from issues related to religion or domestic politics or domestic policy. Their idea is kind of like we're getting in, we're doing a job, we're doing a service, and we're getting out. And if, let's say, the powers that be your political elites or the government asks us to do something on our behalf, as long as they're in power, um, we will assist them in some way. So I, in my experience, I do think that a lot of these companies kind of take note and um, take a note from political elites themselves. I haven't seen uh, very many cases where it's been an issue. Like even, for example, with TikTok, a lot of one of the most popular user bases on TikTok in Africa is Somali people. Um, who tend to be Muslim and they enjoy it as an app and they don't see, they don't necessarily see the conflict between it being a Chinese company from China and things that are going on in Xinjiang as well. Yeah. I don't think I, that's not something that I've seen yet, but it's something interesting to explore for sure. China is an intensely political place and Lotus or Josh love to hear from you on how private companies, private tech companies like Alibaba, like Tencent, How do they navigate the political currents in China? We've seen it quite publicly for Alibaba and somewhat less publicly for Tencent, but I'd love to know what they're doing to manage that relationship. I mean, Josh probably know a lot more than me because, again, I focus quite specifically on the information control, sort of um, user privacy surveillance side of things. What we've able to prove and seen on our perspective is sort of the intermingling of states and private actors in these apparatus, right? So we're seeing as a lot of time companies are trying to do what they need to survive because in order to operate in China, you have to comply with local laws and regulations to make sure that mm-hmm. content on the platform stay within the invisible party line, right? We've seen not only Chinese companies um, doing information control, but also the Chinese version of international apps like Skype. Uh, in China, I think it is called Tom Sky, at least it used to. Um, they also, for to be able to operate in China, they started censoring, you know, keywords of Chinese political sensitivity. So for private companies, regardless of your origin, it's very likely that you have to some sort of work with the system to devise, to to invest technology and personnel to make sure that the content stay within the line. Um, And often, again, because this sort of um, government director are not necessarily handed down to each and every single company with a very specific instruction. A lot of fine companies are just left to themselves to guesstimate what content or what, you know, what are the next step for them. So we see, uh, for example, during the COVID-19 pandemic discussion, we saw that WeChat began sort of censoring very broadly keywords on this platform, we found examples of keywords that actually reference state media reports. So mm-hmm. something that's already confirmed by social, sorry, by Chinese state media, for example, something is published on Xinhua News Agency, and we found keywords extracted from those uh, reports are being censored on, on WeChat. So I think for a private company, of course, they are under the pressure, political pressure, to uh, make sure, you know, content is doesn't deem as problematic or harmful. On the other hand, a lot of time they also doing it sort of 
proactively to avoid, you know, government um, uh, fines or government sort of scolding from the government, if you will. Yeah. So I think the um, there's a definitely a very complicated and nuanced intermingling relationship between states and private actors. Yeah. Bring up laws is out. Josh, go ahead. What were you going to say? Gonna, I just wanted to add. I mean, I think I, mean, I think Lotus made some really great points about private companies. I mean, I think it really is. I think they. I mean, people forget that they are motivated by profit, right? First, these are companies, right? Um, Huawei actually falls into the same category. Um, and so they are, you know, but they're Chinese companies and they have to, you know, part of making profit is survival um, and is sort of keeping yourself on the right side of the, of the party. You know, what you see now is really fascinating because I mean, actually just today, uh, one of my colleagues broke the news that, that um, Ant Financial, was, which is the payments affiliate of, of Alibaba, is, is in talks with state-owned companies to create a new credit ratings company, which will use Ant's data. And that's, you know, like every other internet company, the most valuable thing Ant owns is its data. And this is the one, this is the thing that they've been fighting with the government about. The government wants access to Ant's data. They do 17, I think it was like $17 trillion worth of transactions in a year, right? Which is a huge amount of insight into what's happening in China and the government wants it. Um, and, you know, of course, Alibaba doesn't want to give it up because that's, or Ant doesn't want to give it up because that's their competitive advantage. But now they are, they're giving it up. They're going to, or they are t- talking with state owned companies about basically handing this over for a credit ratings company, which is pretty fascinating. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, the Chinese tech companies now are, I mean, they're still around, um, but their business models are, are being, are, are up in the air. In a, in a really serious way. And what's re- what's also fascinating is you've seen all of these founders of tech companies step down or, or kind of step out of the limelight. So Jack Ma is basically not running his company anymore. Founder of ByteDance, you know, he's doing education philanthropy now. Um, Pony Ma is like, no one's seen Pony Ma, the founder of Tencent in like months. I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess he's been a brief appearance recently, but you know, also all these entrepreneurs, all these sort of innovators in China, people who really drove the Chinese tech industry are stepping away, um, which I think is gonna be really interesting for the future of Chinese tech. When I, when I close my eyes, I, I can see what Jack Ma looks like and I can picture him you know, dressed as a glam rocker on stage. But I mean, I, I don't remember what Pony Ma looks like and he's done, for the longest time, a very good job of being very, very low key. And I, I think, I mean, so if, if Jack Ma is relinquishing his position as the most popular man in China outside of Xi Jinping, I mean, who is next going to wear that dangerous crown? Who do you nope. think? I mean, there's got to be, I mean, there's, al- there's always got to be, so, you know, there's got to be someone, a first among equals. You know, I think that's, a, and I guess they're all fighting to not be that person. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting moment. I mean, these were the people who, and they're heroes, right? You know, Jack Ma is like, he's a godlike figure in China, right? Which was the problem for him, partly, I think, right? And, 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 um, and Zhang Yiming at ByteDance, he's a rock star, right? He's a celebrity. Both of these guys built really innovative companies. Um, and now they, but they don't feel, for whatever reason, they don't feel like they can keep doing that. And so, I, you know, what is that going to mean for the next generation of entrepreneurs in China? Like, what is the message you take? away if you're a young Chinese engineer with an interesting idea for a company, you know, and you see this happening, what do you, you know, what is that, what, what lesson do you take away? I mean, maybe build it. And if you're building a $50 billion business, fantastic. And then above that, so, you know, having a small, medium, even a very large 
success is good. But going beyond that, you're just putting yourself in a dangerous position. But yeah, who knows? It's difficult. You know, Jack Ma was also somewhat of a rock star in some countries across Africa. And I think he gave some big speeches in, in Kenya as well. So how is the news of Jack Ma's fall being taken in Kenya, Alexandria? I think at the beginning, it was it was actually surprising to me. And a number of news outlets actually discussed uh, Jack Ma's disappearance from media, especially because that was on the back of um, the the Netrepreneurs competition that Jack Ma has pursued, pursued here in Africa. And people discussed it, but people still kind of view Jack Ma as a hero here. Uh, people definitely are respect him as a a very important founder of technology and someone who's very important to African tech here. So it's not like his um, esteem has declined here since he's disappeared from from media or from the public in China. In fact, people ask me like, they're like, so where's Jack Ma? I remember that was a joke that people would ask me at one point. Where's Jack Ma? Where do you think Jack Ma is? And I was like, okay, I mean, (laughs) I don't have the inside line on where Jack Ma is, but people were definitely concerned, but it hasn't worn away at his esteem. And I do think that that's a problem. If if all of China's tech pursuits in Africa um, are kind of being viewed in the lens of, of Jack Ma, that obviously would be a problem for, for the state. And, and they would definitely view that as a threat. Lotus, what's your sense on how linked Chinese tech companies are to their founders and how that would say compared to you know, Steve Jobs and Apple and Zuckerberg and Facebook, are they equally as linked or would you say it's a different system and how those two relate? I wish I knew. I feel like Josh and Next Stranger will have uh, much more insight into this. But I feel like one of the things that keeps sort of when people ask China related questions is mm-hmm. as if China is so unique and China Chinese companies are so unique that they mm-hmm. must have a different operation system or different way of functioning. But I think a lot of time. Chinese companies or U.S. company or private companies share a lot more commonality than we expected, than we actually assume. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be surprised, like it wouldn't be a surprise to me if, let's say, in the startup phrases, founders have a lot more control over how they want the app to be, how they want to define the system. There are some media reports saying that Zhang Xiaolong, I don't actually know what his English name is, but he is sort of the founding father or like the developer of WeChat, right? He mm-hmm. has a lot of say. Um, in how WeChat, uh, what WeChat's design should be, what WeChat's UI should be. So we absolutely have a lot of power over the app. But I would think that naturally as the apps get, you know, bigger, get more popular, you now have what 1.4 billion users on the application. Mm-hmm. I think then you have different professional teams or different groups of developer catering the application. So I think it might not be as like that different um, for Chinese companies, how they operate as to, I don't know, U.S. companies. Yeah, Maybe Josh and Estranger can um, <laughs> add on that. We, Scott, just under two minutes. So just as a final question, I would say in a sentence, what should people remember uh, from this panel? Josh, we'll start with you. It's complicated. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll take it. That's a good answer. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take it. Yeah. Puma, what do you think? Uh, I mean, because we mentioned about all these tech owners and talking, and me, I'm focused more on disinformation. So people can look at how uh, Joseph Tsai, the owner of Brooklyn Nets, when he was interviewed by CNBC a few days ago, he actually supported the national security law in Hong Kong mm-hmm. and see how he amplifies all these Chinese propaganda. And this might be another way how all these tech companies could spread disinformation or propaganda. I mean, actually from China. I mean, that's a perspective. Yeah. 
That's a great point. So the, the founders and the top executives themselves, not just the platforms. Alexandria, what do you think? Um, I think that the most important thing to remember is that if the goal is to counter China's tech influence in Africa, better alternatives must be offered. And that the most valuable thing that, that is at stake here is African data, which is extremely profitable. And Chinese tech companies realize that and they're capitalizing. And what I want to see is more African tech companies hold and maintain African data. Lotus. I would say the role of private actors and private companies is very important to keep an eye out for. Thank you all for your incredible insight and comments. Thank you, the Atlanta Council, for hosting us. And thanks to everyone in the audience. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and our Tech Kids Unlimited intern, Nolan Duarte the DFR Labs, Graham Brookie. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.